Hi, and welcome to episode four of Titanium Talk, or TI Talk. Brenton's with me. Hi, Brenton. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? Yeah, not too bad. It's uh, nearly midday here. I think it's probably early morning there for you, which is a bit... bit yeah, it's a little bit early, but got my <laughs> caffeine. Yeah, yeah, me too. We can uh, charge up and uh, and talk some titanium stuff. So, um, since the last episode, which I can't remember if it was, it was around two weeks ago, but it, it might have been later in the week it went up. Um, you've been away uh, to Connect Tech. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So, uh, I was able to go to Connect Tech as, um, as you know, I work for Shaco. So, we were able to um, go there. We had a couple speakers there, and um, I got to speak on titanium using Hyperloop, doing speech recognition. So, that was a good talk. Um, there was a lot of good speakers there. I got to meet a lot of people in person that I'd only seen online. So, it was a good conference, and um, we also Chaco also did a um, some virtual reality and some other talks. It was good. A lot of people there. And was there was it because it's, it's? I mean, I I went to the one in uh, I think it was end of last year. Um, so was there good coverage in terms of you know app development and back end development and Node and APIs and things like that? Was it a good sort of coverage in terms of talks? There were there were a lot of good talks. Uh, there were several node talks. Uh, there's a lot of web stuff now, and there's also a good portion of mobile. And you know, I mean, mobile covers a lot nowadays. So uh, they had at least I think 11 different sessions going on at the same time. So it was my first uh, Connect Tech conference I had been to, but it was a good one. Cool. So all back to the real world. Um... Let's look at the latest news and modules that have come out since the last time we spoke. There's been quite a few updates, mainly around some modules. Well, there's been a, a GA release and a, a GA update in terms of some fixes and a new studio version, but we'll cover all these in a sec. Um, the first one is Bluetooth module updates. Yeah, I believe he um, he's exposing all the iOS 11 the core Bluetooth APIs now. Uh, so that's pretty cool. He keeps right on top of everything when it comes to that and It'll be nice if you want to be able to use some of the iOS 11 stuff in Titanium. Yeah, well, I've, um, I'm actually working or going to be working on a Bluetooth app um, for somebody. So uh, it's going to be interesting to jump into some of that and start using that, which would be cool. Uh, I've got to do an Android and iOS app. So, um, yeah, it'd be fun to play around with that stuff. Yeah, I'd like to do a little bit more with that as well. Yeah, and and I think the the NFC stuff's been opened up, hasn't it, in terms of reading tags, I think, from what I saw in some um, iOS 11 API calls that I was looking at. It looks like you can now do, I was going to mess around with it to see if I could do it through Hyperloop, uh, but it looks like you can start reading certain types of tags that are NFC tags, which is quite cool. That would be very cool. Uh, the other update was ti.facebook module. Um, so they've just done a new version of that, uh, version 5.6.0, um, which I understand adds support for iOS 11 and Xcode 9, which is great. Um, and also the latest uh, Facebook SDK. So keeping up with all the Facebook, every time Facebook updates, making sure you keep up with it. Um, I know sometimes they put in some changes in the Facebook SDK that can bite you. So yeah, always staying up with the latest Facebook SDK and the titanium modules, always a good thing. Yep. And I'll put links to, we'll, we'll put links to all these in the show notes as well. So you can get to those quite easily. TI Maps module has been updated uh, with clustering in iOS 11. Yeah, I saw the... Um, Hans posted a, just a like a five second video showing some of the clustering 
it was pretty cool on this uh, when he tweeted it. So that's pretty cool. I can't wait to see some of that. We'll do the link to the do the clustering demo as well. Then in the in the show notes as well. Um, what else have we got? Six point two two GA was released. You know, bug fix and performance improvements and the usual sort of patch release from the six point two release. Anything notable to to talk about in there? Um, no, I think they they covered yeah a lot of like you said a lot of the bug fixes, um, getting things stable. It was nice that I think they came out with back to back releases. They're really cranking out the releases, getting getting stuff done anytime they see something or a feature to add they they're coming out with them very quickly yeah and and off the back of that has come the new studio update uh, 4.1 4.10.0 which was a release candidate for a a week or so a couple of weeks and has now been ga'd which is quite cool and that has now live view support with es6 which sounds pretty awesome yeah that's uh, that's i've been waiting on that as well because that That'll be a cool feature to be able to use the live view. With they've already added ES6 support into um, Alloy and some other things. Now this adds a lot of live view support into, or I'm sorry, ES6 support into live view as well. So I think there were some new app designer improvements as well that went into the studio, the studio build. But that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm I'm a CLI CLI guy, so. Yeah, likewise. Jump into Studio now and again for the odd tutorial or blog post, but otherwise, I'm I like using. I'm current, still using Atom. Uh, they've done some improvements in that to make it faster, which is quite nice. Um, I, I did jump into Code Visual Studio Code uh, for a little bit, but um, I'm back in Atom at the moment. Um, one thing on the Live View support. So with ES6 and Alloy um, now, I've I had a bit of a day yesterday with the whole sort of Node setup where I was trying to revert my node from using nvm to back to the system node because i was trying to update alloy and then I, when i was i was sort of you know doing the npm uh, install dash g alloy and then doing a version check and it's saying it's installed it but it wasn't updated it's because i've got nvm and things happen and i had some weird setup um with my node module so i did a bit of a clean out yesterday with all that <laughs> and i think one thing that came across because i was testing the live ues6 stuff with alloy now there's a few things, weird things going on with the up, with the version numbers of Alloy at the moment. But is it which one is it that's supporting ES6? Is it do you have to have the 1.10.5, the latest one? I think the ES6 support started in you know, 1.10.3, and then I think they've had a dot four and five. Uh, now those aren't the ones that um, go with the Appcelerator release. Those are the ones if you're using the open source version of Titanium and Alloy. Yeah. So you can, and there's also a way to be able to install it. Um, to override the version of Alloy that comes with Accelerator, and we'll probably maybe post a link to that as well. Yeah, so I think there's some stuff there that's getting sort sorted out. It was to do with the way that things were being released, but but essentially, if you go to the Alloy um, open source uh, repository on GitHub, you'll see that there's these versions beyond 1.9, which is this version that's coming with the AppC CLI. So the AppC CLI, if you're running the Titanium CLI, then Titanium is separate from Alloy. Okay, so you have Titanium. And you have Alloy for people out there that do that. If you're installing the AppC CLI, AppC CLI comes with its own version of Alloy. And I believe at the moment that that version of Alloy is a 1.9.x version. So the version that's on GitHub, which gives you the ESC support, is the 1.10.x version, you know, like three, like Brenton was saying. So I think the five is the latest. Um, so to install that, you have to install that and then use the Titanium CLI. Or if you're using AppC, you'd need to override your. Um, embedded version with that new version and once you do that 
you get ES6 support. And I was testing this the other day and it wasn't working. And that's why I ended up having to install the updated alloy to get it working. And once I'd done that, it was all great. Um, and you know it's not going to work because as it compiles the, the, the pre-compiles or pre-processes the JavaScript for alloy, it will error saying it doesn't understand the code basically um, if you drop any ES6 stuff in. So um, so yeah, it's all working. I'm running, I'm currently running Node 6. Um, so I've got Node 6. And I also... Uh, just just while I'm talking about that, there was this really annoying error I was getting uh, with Node. And it only happened when I used uh, the Titanium CLI. So if I used the Titanium CLI or I was using the appc ti command, which obviously then piggybacks through to the Titanium CLI. Um, if I used either of those combinations, I was getting this error uh, to do with a Node module that wasn't the correct version. Yeah, every once in a while you get, get errors and I mean, at first, if you're just starting to use this, you might think it's there's a problem with titanium or alloy, but a lot of times you have to make sure your node setup is correct, and it's yeah. it's really tricky sometimes. Like you mentioned NVM earlier. Yeah, I run NVM, and sometimes if you have multiple versions of node and you go to install stuff, and if you put something in global, it might be in a different global, and yeah, it can get kind of hairy at times. Yeah, so the, the error I was getting was this um, was something to do with a graceful dash fs module, and it was basically saying that this module is out of date, and you know you need to update this module. What I worked out was happening eventually because it didn't work with the appc CLI. If you built it with the app, if you did appc dash v to get the version number, you got the version number. If you did the same thing with titanium, you were getting this error saying about native module sources are not supported with graceful fs, and suggesting that you update now. It wasn't stopping anything working. It was just a warning. The problem is when you're trying to use any uh, add-on component that does scripting with the Titanium CLI, it doesn't expect to see certain responses. So I was using, I can't remember which what it was. It was a testing tool or something. And it was obviously initiating the CLI and it wasn't expecting to get this error back. So it was failing because it just wasn't expecting that string. You know, it was expecting something else. It was expecting, uh, uh, you, know, you know, some other statements to come up, but it wasn't expecting that. So it immediately broke it. Now, on a Mac, there's a, there's, a, there's a hidden folder called .titanium, which is in the root of your user account. Inside that folder is a config.json file. And that stores all the configuration um, aspects of the titanium CLI and in that file is a hooks area and in that hooks area are a load of hooks that you might have installed so if you've done uh, if you're using TI shadow or some other tool then that's going to put a hook in there and that is usually where I find that things can can go a bit funny especially if you're like me and you never do a clean install you know, I'm always upgrading machines and I for the sake of speed I just restore from time machine or whatever um, so basically all I did was I just just copied out that whole block of, of hooks, you know, saved the config file and just ran ti-v again. And the error didn't come up. It's like, okay, interesting. So I started to introduce each one back in again. And I found out the one that was causing it was the ti-stats module. And it's a really old module from ages ago. It's like three years old that gives you like CPU stats and things on your app. Um, and I must have used it years ago. Um, and it was that module that had the old version of graceful-fs. And that was what was causing the problem. That's so funny. So as soon as I remove that, that error disappeared. So it's always a good thing to go through stuff like that because if you're like me and you're just upgrading and upgrading, you can collect all... I mean, I found references to faster titanium, which was a sort of live view variant that was years, you know, worked on a while ago um, and other things like that. So just, yeah, cleaned it all out and uh, everything was fine again. But but on, on that subject as well, what's interesting is um, typing NPM root into your CLI to see where your root NPM installations go for, for your modules. 
because somehow in the past and because of the way that I upgrade, I had for some some reason there was some command I did at some point which somehow changed my root of my NPM modules to be inside Titanium Studio. <laughs> so inside, no way, really. <laughs> yeah, so inside the container of Titanium Studio in the applications folder, there was, uh, and there was a weird, it was just weirdly written because it was like Titanium Studio and then it said password and stuff. So obviously at some point I was asked a question or I did something or I typed in the wrong window and it wasn't my password, but it was just a prompt. But obviously something happened. And I somehow moved my NPM route to this other. Now, of course, it's a folder, so it will still work. Uh, but it just means that you know modules I was installing were going in that particular place. So I've cleaned all that out. I reset my route back to where it should be, um, and hopefully everything's. I mean, I've been building stuff yesterday, so everything seems fine. But yeah, Node is one of those things that can can be a bit hairy, especially when you're trying to play with different things that suddenly say you know you're using titanium with six and then something else says oh you know you need node four to use this and so right so then you go and install something like nvm and then by installing the new version of node or changing node it changes your npm packager and you just get it can very easily get into a mess with it yeah and there's the different versions of npm can they made a lot of changes i think when they went to three and then also to five uh, there's also some npm changes so yeah realizing what version of npm you're on not that I mean, you you still have to become more familiar with Node.js as you start doing a lot of things, not just Accelerator. So yeah, being very familiar with what your environment is very important. Uh, but yeah, it's nice to nice to get the ES6 stuff in there. It's nice to just play around with some code. And I haven't done a lot of ES6 so far, just because I didn't want to I didn't want to use like a hack to do it and then be dependent on that hack. Um, but it's nice that it's now baked in. So. It's not an issue, and it seems pretty fast in terms of live view restarting and everything. And um, the new version of live view seems a bit snappier. So yeah, pleased with that. Yeah, that's nice. I've I've been using ES6 stuff for a while. I've done the hack stuff before it was in there, but sometimes just using it. If 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 you want to try using it and you haven't used it before, there uh, uh, the Babel site has a lot of information. I'll post a link there as well about the differences ES and ES6 and then ES7 as well but sometimes just messing around with it use it getting familiar with it but there's a lot of cool features I mean do you do you when you use it are you going fully in with all the sort of classes and all that stuff or are you using um, sort of the built-in promises and things like that are you, you know are you using aspects of it or are you going fully into it I'm using aspects of it so it's not completely ch- it's not completely changing your code and in that sense it's just sort of enhancing certain things that you might have done through a, an add-on module or something you're now able to do, you know, with the built-in stuff. Correct. I haven't got a lot into the classes yet. I want to uh, get into that a little bit more, but yeah, you can take it baby steps and just start doing a few things, use a few features of it, and then use more as you're comfortable. Okay. So that's the latest news and modules. Let's get on to talk about some other subjects. So one of the things that came up. There's a few things that came up in TI Slack recently, which were quite interesting and on Stack Overflow. Um, one of the ones I saw are tutorial screens. So these are the sort of screens, um, there's, there's different types that you can get. So in some apps, when you launch an app, you'll get the sort of um, scrollable view style, you know, here's our introduction. It might have a picture of of a screen and an explanation of what it does. And, you know, if you're talking about sending payments to someone, so it's like, you know, pick a contact from your list and then hit next and you go to the next screen and it will tell you what the next step is. And it's almost like an intro 
um, an intro to the app, you know, the feature, the main features of the app. And then there's the other style, which has become quite common in applications where, which I, I get quite annoyed at because they just pop up, you know, until you first use them and then they disappear. Um, but it just means every screen you go into, you get this, is you get these overlay ones that pop up. I don't know if you've seen these. So, um, you know, you'll you'll land on your home screen, you'll log in, you've, you've, or register, you've landed on the home screen of the app, and then suddenly the, the, the screen grays out slightly or blacks out um, with a sort of opacity, and then you'll get these overlays appearing. Um, they're usually like little arrow pointing to an element underneath with a little explanation of what that what that's doing. Um, and then you can tap the screen or tap a, a button to get rid of it. And then what will sometimes happen is if you then go into another screen, you'll get the same thing again, and you'll get it for the first time that you go to each of these sections. Yeah, kind of the onboarding. Sometimes it's for features, sometimes for the app itself. Yeah, and, I, and I've done it, and I've done it. I've done it on the Word Tin app that I wrote for the kids. I actually did it on that. So, um, you know, you, you have the sort of black screen come up. And it, because I've used these icons, like I've used an eight ball icon, which is supposed to randomize the words. And so it's just sort of trying to explain. And, and you know, one argument is if you have to explain something, you've, you've done it wrong. <laughs> if, you have to explain how to, <laughs> if you have to explain how to use something, you failed at sort of user interface design immediately. Uh, but I think in some cases it's really difficult, especially if if you're using icons or you're using icons instead of words or your your interface is such that you're trying to save on space. It can be quite difficult. And I mean, it's it's pretty it is a hard thing to do these days to make a nice, concise and uh, interface that is intuitive and that doesn't require much explanation. So sometimes having these little tips is is quite handy. Uh, but the discussion that came up was um, it was a Stack Overflow which was, and I'll put a link again in the show notes, and it was a classic one of these where this overlay comes up and it has all these things pointing to elements underneath. And the person posting it was asking, you know, what's the best way of doing this? How could I implement this? And a few suggestions came in, but one of them was to actually do it as an image, which is fine if you're targeting one device with one resolution. The problem with doing it as a, as a full image that has a sort of transparency to it is that if, especially if you're pointing arrow, I mean, if, if you're sort of pointing to the left top corner and the right top corner, well, you can sort of get away with it. But if you're pointing to a particular element that the person can see through that blackened, um, you know, opacity layer, and you're, you're pointing to that exact icon, then obviously that positioning is going to vary depending on the device and the spacing and the way that the app's been programmed. And so, you know, you're going to have to have a, an, an overlay image for an iPad, an overlay image for a five inch phone or a four a three and a half inch phone a four inch phone a five inch phone you know it's going to be you know all different sizes and it's just and then you add the android part in and it's going to get completely crazy um so one of the suggestions i had which i'm not saying is the right way because i haven't even tried it yet but it'd be interesting too is and i don't know if you've you've come across this or done this but the suggestion i had was to create uh to so to to create a sort of transparent window on top first of all um, the next thing would then be to add to that window the view that would then be black, um, and I call that a blocker view. And the reason the reason I don't make the 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 window black and opacity is then everything inside it will have an opacity, which is not what you want. So right. the window the, the transparent window is there to block the view; they can't tap on anything. You then add another view into the window. You make that view black and put it opacity as say 0.5, and now it's going to be transparent. Now you add elements on top of that, but you don't add them to the view because, again, if you do that, they'll have that transparency. So you add them back to the window, but because you're adding them last, they go on top of the view. So you get the full color and and correct opacity for those elements. And then what I was thinking was uh, one way to do it. So so I basically came up with this idea that you could break all of the, um, I'll call them tooltips. It's probably the wrong word, but it's just from the old Windows days. 
if you imagine a tooltip as being a arrow indicator of some kind plus a piece of text. So have that as some sort of component or element. And that element comprises of a view. And inside that view is a transparent view. And inside that is a, an image view representing the icon. And then underneath a, a label representing the text. Um, obviously, the position of that arrow could be different. So you might have different, slightly different configurations or different ways of managing that based on the, the arrow position that's being used. And then what I thought is you could do is in your um, components in the in the page that you want to associate with the tooltip, you would be able to say, say I'm putting in a label or a button, I would be able to add an attribute to that to identify that it has a tooltip and which tooltip ID it is or something like that. Or I, or you add the tooltip object and add the ID of the element it's attached to. But you create that relationship between the two elements. So the button's positioned on the screen underneath. The tooltip that's being added has a relationship to that button. So whether you create the tooltip dynamically and specify the button ID as the, the, the thing it relates to, it now has the ability, because the page has been rendered, to, to get the position of that button, to get its X and Y position and its width and height. And using that information, it should be able to render itself in a way that's on the new window on top, but in the correct position to be in the right place for that element on the screen, if you see what I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the end result is you end up with those individual elements being positioned on the screen above in the right position in respect to the parent element they're related to, but they're on top of the opacity layer, but they're a normal image view and a normal text label, which means they can be translated. It means they're not taking up a huge amount of space. Uh, because they're not, you're not storing multiple images or image text or anything. So it means they can be easily changed, um, whether it's from an API or from the, the language file. So that was, the, that was the idea I came up with. And what I might do is try and do a proof of concept of it as a little sort of custom tag or override of a tag um, to see if that works. So would you just have the element itself then be responsible for adding its, I guess, tooltip to the window? Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering. I'm wondering whether you don't. I'm wondering whether you don't do it on the actual target tag because it just sort of means that you're saying that almost every every label you're creating could have one of these, and it's not normally necessarily the case. If so, if you think about this as an, you're you're actually loading a tutorial screen. So let's assume we're loading a tutorial screen. So that true tutorial screen will have a load of elements on it. So um, there'll be a load of these alloy tags, whatever we're going to call them, tooltip or widgets or whatever. So they're just, and they're literally in the XML, you're just listing out a load of them with their relevant image URL and the text. That's it. Um, and each of them has an ID, I suppose. And then what you could do then in the code of that particular controller that you're bringing up is you're just associating each one of those with a target element from the previous, you know, from the host screen. I guess you could do it. It doesn't even need to be a window, actually. I mean, it could just be a view. So if you're bringing up the view on top, a transparent view on top, then the black view that's got the opacity... Um, then the elements are going on top of that. So this could be a you know a required in controller. And then what you're saying is for every element in that screen, so you know if the, if it's called tutorial, I've called the controller tutorial. So you know tr tutorial dot tip one um, dot target equals dollar dot button one. Do you know what I mean? So you're you're linking button one of the current screen to tooltip one of the overlay that you're bringing in. That's created that relationship. So now the tooltip knows it has this button link. It can call the X and Y, get the width and height, and position itself based on that particular thing. That's that's what I'm thinking is a, is a reasonable yeah. way to approach it. Um, yeah, it sounds like that that could be really helpful because it could really kind of automate, if you will, the whole process. As long as you have 
I don't know, depending on how you write it, if you have certain tags or you write it a certain way, then if you create a tutorial screen, it can look for these tooltips and show them at the appropriate time. So that'd be real helpful. Yeah, I mean, you could even do it. Yeah, exactly. You could even do it so you're storing you're storing an attribute with the ID in the tooltip. And then because it knows its parent that it's been added to, it searches for those IDs and just finds them automatically. I think it might be quite interesting to try it. I mean, I might... I might write. I might try and write something and see if I can. Because the other the other challenge is dealing with the arrows. So if you're using these positional arrows, is you know you've got to be able to specify: is it a left? Is it a right? Is it an up arrow? And then based on that, how it gets positioned. You know, if it's an up arrow, the anchor point is the top of that that tooltip view because you want that to appear at the bottom of the target. If it's a left arrow, then the anchor point is the left of that tooltip, and you want that to position to the right of the target element. So it's it's taking that into account, plus how it's going to work with the screen width. You know, what happens if by positioning it to the right, you're actually taking it off the screen? It's it's interesting. I mean, it's a, it, it, I wonder whether it's possible to actually have the positional arrows as images and then almost have it decide the best way of doing it. So, you know, if you've asked me to 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 appear as a tooltip for, um, you know, this this element in the top right of the screen, well, I know that I can't fit to the right of that because I'm going to go off the screen. So I'm going to position myself underneath because I'm at the top or to the left. Do you see what I mean? It's, I think that could be quite interesting. Man, you got a whole bunch of ideas going. That, it sounds like a great widget. I'd like to yeah, contribute to that as well because that sounds really cool. Yeah, I'll play around. I think I'll play around with something on that. It should be quite interesting. But I think the overriding, the overriding thing I was trying to, to sort of definitely get away from is is focusing on images because using images for text, using image arrows and text, you know, even having the, the sort of overlay screen and then having a transparent image on top, even though you've got a lot of transparency there, you're just creating much more work for yourself because when a client comes back and says, oh, can we change the description of that tooltip? You've got to go back into whatever editor you were using, you know, graphics editor, re-render that graphic, export it back out to a PGN or whatever, and put that back in the app. Whereas if that's just a label being referenced from a, you know, config or a language file, that's dead easy to change. It's done. Even changing the font. Yeah. And trying to get the, if you use one image, a lot of times I've found to trying to get that to line up with the controls, like you said, because if you're on a different device, it may stretch or move or something that that overlay image and it may not line up exactly with your control at all. Exactly. Uh, depending on how the flow of your your layout is. So, uh, yeah, and making sure, uh, I was going to say, if you're going to do that widget, make sure, like, skip is, like, a primary property. <laughs> and I hate I hate it when you have the, the things and it's not easy to either find or be able to skip kind of thing. But that's just my... With, uh, yeah, you, you you either need an explicit skip button or you need just to be able to tap the screen to dismiss it. I like those ones. Yes. Um, it's that, and uh, I just can't stand it when you're trying to go in and do something, especially um, if you've, for some reason, had to uninstall the app or reinstall it. You know, maybe you already <laughs> had the app and you've reinstalled it. You know what it, how it works. You know what you're doing. But you've just got to go through these damn tutorial things all the time, which is, it can be frustrating. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting thing to get, to try and get right. Uh, but, I mean, I guess the temptation is to say, you know, if I need to add this, why am I adding this? Is my UE too complicated? Is there something I can do around that to make that better? And worst case, if I can't, and if I have to have something like this, then how can I make it as easy as possible to get the information across, but also let people get past it? I think that goes along with something we talked about in one of the previous episodes as well about making your app uh, 
um, using a lot of the native controls and things like if if your app is using a lot of the native controls and the best practices for that native uh, device, then a lot of times it'll just be intuitive how to do certain things. If you start getting custom and doing some other things, that's when you might venture into having to explain how to use it. Yeah, exactly. And that's also more, that's actually really relevant at the moment. And I'm seeing that with native, with native developers. And by that, I mean people that are doing stuff, you know, directly in Xcode with Swift or Objective C where they are having difficulty with their apps, getting it working with the iPhone 10 um, because they've developed for some reason. And I know plenty of titanium developers and titanium apps that will have done this as well. They'll have developed maybe their own tab group or their own interface for navigation, um, which is not using UEKit. Um, you know, if you use UEKit, if you use the tab group, if you use the navigation window, I'm talking probably more about tab group, then it will automatically adapt itself for that bottom home button um, that's now on the iPhone 10. You know, it will move the interface up so that you've got that home button in the correct place. Uh, but if you're using your own tab group that is completely outside of that and is doing your, uh, you know, you're completely rendering that yourself, there's a risk that you could end up being underneath that, um, which means your, you know, your tabs are, are sort of underneath that new home button, that sort of slit that's at the bottom of the screen. So again, it's another example of why trying to keep things simple, trying to go with standard elements, trying to go with standard UE controls. I've seen lots of developers, native developers, you know, saying that their apps aren't working or appearing properly because they're, they're going into the horns, they're going into the ears incorrectly. Um, whereas, you know, a few of the apps that I've tested recently that I've been working on just look fine. I mean, there's just no, there's no issue um, because I'm just using normal navigation window tab group, you know, back buttons, all the normal stuff. I'm not trying to do anything super clever or, or throw too many things up there or whatever. Um, so yeah, keeping it simple is always good. Very good point. Brings us nicely to um, a couple of subjects that have come up recently. One, which was a, a real big one yesterday, um, again, linked to a Stack Overflow. They're both sort of kind of related, but I'll sort of talk about each one individually. So the first one is to do with uh, window management, navigation management, uh, just app structure, I suppose. And the sort of statement I've got here is, um, you know, window management, navigation, and why aren't you using Alloy? And it's an interesting one. You know, I, I don't know how long you've been, well, go back to episode one, I suppose, how long we've both been we're doing this. But, I've, you know, I started doing Titanium stuff in 2010. Uh, and I got into it and loved it because of the JavaScript and the way that it was really easy. But there come, came a point where, as you're developing apps, I found, you keep changing the way you do stuff. You know, do I, do I, and I'm going to refer to it as classic titanium here, but, you know, do I do all my definitions at the top of the particular function or view and then add them to each other at the bottom so it's clear at the bottom what's going on, that my window has the view and the view has the button? Or do I create my window do I create my view? Do I add my view to my window at that point? Do I create the button? Do I add the button to the view at that point? Do you know what I mean? You know, it's you end up with this you know, st structural thing of of where your how you structure that UE to make sense, um, right? And it always I always struggled with it. I always um, changed my mind. I was in the middle of an app and I'd move code around and decide no, I don't want to do it like that. I think it's better to have it all at the bottom, have the definitions at the top, and have the other stuff at the bottom. Then I'd realize oh, there's a point where actually because of this functionality, I need to have the ad done first. And it all got really bad. And it, it got to the point where I was just not fed up, but I was just not enjoying that side of things. Then Alloy came along and it took me a while to really understand the, understand the benefit of Alloy um, because it was such a big change to go from classic and to see like these XML files. But what I love about Alloy, and I, 
I haven't used, you know, I didn't use models and collections for a long time. So it was only till I wrote that Resty library that I did that a few years ago. Uh, but what I really loved about Alloy was the whole approach to how to create views and the fact that, you know, when you looked in that XML file, you could see the entire structure of your page. Everything was related. Everything was indented correctly. Um, you could style everything with the TSS and keep all that completely out of the way so your XML was nice and clean. And your JavaScript at the end of the day was far less in your controller file because you weren't having to do all that stuff. I don't think I have any apps that use classic titanium without alloy anymore. I, I, I Granted, I started probably uh, a year or two after you uh, with titanium, so alloy was just coming out then, so it was just part of it. I was like, oh, yeah, titanium and alloy, just start using it. So I'd, I've had very little experience just creating titanium classic apps, but yet the architecture and framework that they give you with alloy, I would want to create an app without it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a difficult, it is a difficult one to start working with when you're coming from classic, because there's certain things like understanding that you can do required or that you can create controllers on the fly and add them in and things like alert dialogue. You know, you can do an alert dialogue in code. You can also do it in XML and it's up to different people, how they do, how they end up doing that. I tend to, with those, I just do that in the in code because I think it's it's less to write than doing the full alert dialogue in the XML. But, you know, each to his own in terms of that sort of stuff. And the nice thing with Alloy is that you can mix classic titanium in there as well. Um, but what what I guess always gets me when I look at an application, if I have a client who comes along with an old app and they need some help with it, um, they need to do some updates, and then it's not Alloy. I mean, some of them are Alloy and they're still done in a weird way. But when they're not... I find that you find so many different ways to skin a cat in terms of how to build that application um, where you can load the application up and the client can say, okay, on this particular page, which is showing a list of courts, um, you know, we need to move that label across a little bit or we need to change this a little bit or we need to change this icon or add a new piece of information. And your brain tells you that you want to load the code up and look at the code and it's going to tell you that there's a courts file and when you go to the courts file that's going to be the layout of the courts you know courts detail or whatever but it's it's never that easy from what i've seen with the way that people <laughs> you know different people can approach stuff uh and i guess it goes back to that whole thing of right and wrong ways and whether there is a right and wrong way and i think the combination of javascript where you could do anything you want in any way you want and the combination of titanium where you can use classic and alloy and both is you can end up getting like rabbit hole style code where I've literally had to follow a thread of code down to another file and down to another required file that then adds in another view that has its own window manager that creates another window that goes into a view that finally shows this element. And then I actually find the line of code that I need to change. That can be really frustrating. Yeah, I think one of the things that Alloy, the, the best benefits is consistency. So yeah, like you said, you can create your own framework. You can you can make something, but as a developer, most of the time, if you're going to go to do a new app, you're like, oh, I can do this better, and you're going to do it different. And so every app would have a different, completely different structure and framework. But when you use Alloy, you know what to expect. I mean, granted, you're going to build things on top of that, but you know you're going to have your controllers, your views, your TSS files, um, all that. And so when you're going between apps, uh, or you're using widgets, which come with Alloy, you know what to expect. You know where to find things. It makes it a lot quicker to update. Um, even for my own code, a lot of times I go into apps that I've written years ago uh, and non-mobile apps, and 
I go, look, what was I thinking? What framework was I using at that time? What was I, and I, it, Alloy makes it easy. I can go back um, even to apps that were created years ago in Alloy and you know, you're always still going to have a controller and a view and the styles. And so it makes it easier to update if you're going to take an old app and bring it up to a new SDK. Yeah. And, and for me, it's always been about, I mean, I don't know if, if you're like this, but I, plenty of people that are, where you can work on lots of different things at the same time. And you could literally, you know, have a massive, great block of time where you're coding for one day. And then you don't come back to that particular project or piece of code for a couple of days or maybe even a week. And you can easily come back and go, I have no idea what the hell this is doing. <laughs> I have no idea why I did this. I don't know why that if statement is like that. I really don't know what's going on <laughs> right now. Uh, because you were in that sort of moment of, uh, you know, uh, you were um, inspired to, to write stuff and it all worked. And now you don't understand it. So I find if I can write as little code as possible, if I can not write hundreds and hundreds of lines of JavaScript, then things are going to be a lot easier, which is why I love Alloy. Um, the other thing is the fact that Alloy is pre-processing this stuff. So you get people that have written their own, not versions of Alloy, but their own sort of rendering engine that can use like a, a JSON file or whatever. And then they'd have an, a little engine or renderer that would go through that and create the titanium. The problem with those sorts of approaches is they're, they're typically doing that at runtime. So, you know, it's processing this JSON file. It's generating all those elements. It's putting them on the screen at runtime. Now, I know that um, Alloy, or the, the code you're writing behind is doing that too. But the, my point is that is that these this easy to you use um, way of creating views in Alloy is all irrelevant when it comes to the actual app because that XML is passed into normal JavaScript. But I guess the key thing is it's passed into a consistent uh, level of JavaScript. You know, it's it's at it's creating the JavaScript in a certain way where you could compare multiple Alloy projects, look in their resources folder, look at the code that's been generated, and it's all going to look similar because it's following the same kind of pattern. Um, and I, and, and the same thing comes from when you're data binding. I mean, I, I didn't touch models and collections for a long time just because I sort of procrastinated a bit and just thought, well, I don't really understand the concept, so I'm just going to avoid it. Um, so I was using Alloy for the views and styles, and then I was doing my own data binding. And when I started to write the, the library that I wrote for the API that became the RESTI system, because um, that was originally written just to create a simple API for me. So I would have the config, I'd write the config, and it would generate me a JavaScript object effectively that had like, you know, uh, get videos, get video detail, uh, get news stories. Right. It, would, it would have those functions already built. It was like almost like an API generator. And it was only when I someone mentioned about models and collections and I thought, okay, I can look into this. And that's really when I learned about Backbone and about how Alloy works and how, you know, the Alloy way of creating models and, uh, and defining them is not a Backbone thing. It's an Alloy thing that then defines the Backbone object. And all my RESTI library does is do that in a different way. Um, but the fundamental thing you get back at the end, a collection or a model, you can you can hack them, you can create them on the fly, you can create all these workarounds that let you then utilize those binding features of Alloy. And that was a game changer for me because whenever I see any code now from somebody who is literally you know, creating a table view or creating usually table views, but creating a table view, creating a table view row, creating all the elements in it, you know, adding all those elements, binding them to the, the, the actual object that's coming through, adding that row to a, an array, then setting the data of the table. There's just a lot of code being written. And it goes back to that thing of the more you, the more code you write, the more confused you could become, the more complicated it can become, the more problems you can have. Uh, just 
and the more the more knock-on effects that has it could have effect you know an effect with performance it could have effect with memory leaking or all kinds of things so for me it's like a complete that was a complete game changer and now i just adore it i love it i love writing stuff with alloy because i just feel like i can knock up screens and knock up this stuff so quickly um, and bind data so quickly it's just it's you know a real pleasure to work with yeah i think um i was in the same boat i didn't use the models and collections for quite a while and um yeah a couple years ago i got more into it and i i think a lot of developers out there are in the same boat that just they don't know how to get started they don't want to do it wrong it seems a little confusing maybe a little bit difficult but like within the last couple years uh there's a lot of uh Titanium Titans have written some blog posts about using data binding. Um, we can post some links here as well, but yeah. it really makes it, simplifies it, makes it easier to understand. But I mean, just go out there, create a sample project, and and bind to just a simple JSON object. If you start, I mean, start with something, get familiar with it. But I think you'll find, um, I agree with you that if you just start using it, you'll realize how powerful it is and easy to use and then you just get so many things for free that you've probably been writing on your own. Yeah, exactly. And there's a couple of blog posts that went up over the last few weeks that was sort of an alloy data binding intro, sort of one and two, which I did. Um, the first one was a really simple one that just talked about having a mock library and then using that to, to bind the data to tables and to, to other data on the screen. And then the second follow-up was how to do the sort of detail views using this sort of hidden dollar, not hidden, but this widely unknown dollar model feature where you can pass a model to a controller uh, using a a dollar model property. And then you could just literally add the binding tag straight into your XML in that detail view and you do a transform and that's it, it's bound. Um, And that's really nice. And so that's that changed the way I do this stuff because it means, you know, my my code to render a list into a view is a few lines. It's like a couple of lines of code, if not one line of code, which is usually just the fetch um, for that collection. Um, that's it. That's the JavaScript. Uh, there's, there'll probably be another JavaScript function to handle the click event and what to do next. And that might be to open a detail view. And traditionally, you'd then open the detail view. You'd pass the model or the JSON representation of it. In the detail view, you'd then bind each of your elements, each of your fields or labels in JavaScript code. You know, you'd say $.firstName equals a model or args dot first names, you know, something like that. And you'd have to do that each time, you know, uh, and you'd have a whole block of code in your detail screen. Whereas if you can pass the model across and use the data binding elements with the little curly brackets in your view and do a transform, well, then it's bound it, it's done it. And so you've just achieved the same layout with far less JavaScript code. Now I know there's JavaScript code being generated by Alloy, but that's not the point. My point is, you know, because that, that gets turned into Xcode stuff and gets wrapped in that and there's a whole load of stuff that gets created. We don't care about that. I just care about the code that I'm editing and keeping that as simple as, as possible. Yeah, and I, I think highlighting on the, the fact that it is a compile time process for a lot of the stuff is important because if there's enhancements that go into Alloy with every release, there are, you just get those. Um, so every time you exactly. recompile your app, you're going to get be able to take advantage of that. You're not going to have to rewrite your code to be able to uh, to get the new optimizations for data binding or other things that you're just going to get it. Exactly, and things like theming. You know, when you see people, you see apps where they've got several different versions they're supporting for different clients, and and they're using sort of Common JS require files to handle the theming and stuff that stuff you know i know that alloy is based on common js it's using the same sort of principles you know when you require a controller or create controller it's basically requiring a new instance of that file 
um, behind the scenes. Um, but my point is, is that this stuff is built in. You know, you've got theming built in, and there's add-ons you can add to even theme the TI app XML and do stuff like that. So you can actually have one code base that manages all this stuff really easily, um, and is really easy to update using TSS. You can override. You can have your sort of generic white label app, and then easily have themes for all your different variants of it. Um, so I, I, I've yet to be convinced by anybody that not using alloy is the way forward. And I know there are some diehards out there that don't use it, but I just don't understand why you wouldn't. Um, I think it just makes more sense. And it leads into the next thing to talk about, which is um, memory issues and memory leaks. Because alloy does a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Because alloy is rendering these things onto the screen, it knows the relationships of everything. And it can do a lot to do. It can do a lot with the cleanup of that application afterwards. Uh, and those views afterwards. Um, so I don't know what your experience of, of coming across some of these issues are. There's a great, um, I mean, before we talk about this, there's a great video by Rick Blalock, which we'll put in the show notes. Um, if you haven't, if you're a titanium developer, whether you're using Alloy or not, and you have never seen this video, the video is called your app, I think it's called your apps are leaking. Um, you need to go and see, go and click on that link now, go and watch that video and come back. We'll wait for you to come back. Um, you can just go and watch that now. It's about 20 minute, 30 minute presentation and then come back and we'll continue. Okay. Wasn't that a great video? Yeah. Wasn't it a so great video? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you paused then and went and saw that and now you've come back. Yeah. That video is really old. I mean, it was, it's several years old. It was from one of the first code strongs. I think it might've even been the first code strong, but everything in that video is still relevant today. Um, and, and the main reason this comes up all the time, and I see this, is there was a, another Stack Overflow post, which I'll post a link to as well, um, that someone posted a few days ago. So I was contacted by somebody who needed some help with an app, and it turns out this was this, this guy. So he's posted a couple of sample bits of code. It's a really simple app. It's a classic app. Um, you can recreate it easily just by creating a normal Titanium project. Add in these files. Um, so in the app.js, he's requiring uh, window one. Uh, and opening it and in window one he's creating a button uh, the button's called open you click the button it requires and opens window two and in window two uh, which actually just comes in over the top with a sort of view it has a close button and you close it so it's a very very simple app but if you run that code that's in that stack overflow and if you look through the code it doesn't look like there's anything majorly wrong with it it looks it's sort of on the face of it you think okay there's there's, you know, he's declaring variables. Um, there's no weird global pollution. There's no, there's no app event stuff, ti.app. You know, fire event stuff being used, which is always a, a problem, uh, can always be a problem, and it's mentioned in that video uh, quite well. Um, nothing looks out of place, too out of place. It looks too simple, really. But if you if you fire the app up, and this is one of the great, and again, this is going to be, I'm going to do a blog post on this on this whole subject on memory leaks on this particular example because I think it's really important. Basically, if you go into iOS and you build your app, it's best you can use Live View, but I tend to not because of the way that instruments will restart it. So, and I think it's easier to test it with a with a nice clean build as it would you know run on the device. So you you build build the version of this app. Um, don't use Live View. Don't use anything like TI Shadow or anything like that. Get it installed on the on the simulator and get it launching. Once it's launched, you fire up instruments, uh, and in instruments you've got the option to pick your target. So you can pick. Uh, your Mac, or you can pick the simulator that's running, and then you get a list of apps that are running, and it usually defaults to the running or the one that's on screen at the moment. Um, so I called mine Leak, and so it came up with Leak. And then you hit the, you you go to Allocations. That's what you want to be looking for. Um, and once you're in Allocations, you do you hit the record, record button, and it will immediately restart the app in the simulator, and it will start the instruments tracking. 
Um, now, one of the tricks that you need to do to be able to do this properly, and again, I'll put all this in a post, is you need to search for TIUE, not TI.UE, just TIUE. There's a little search box in instruments when you're doing the allocations. Uh, you type in TIUE and it will filter all of the TIUE components. But basically, when you create an element in Titanium, when you create a, a view, um, anything to do with the Titanium SDK, it's creating a proxy object on the other side in iOS. And that's the how it's relating what you're doing with JavaScript to that native element on the screen. So for every window you create, there's a window proxy. For every button you create, there's a button proxy. And it's really important to clean all that stuff up. So if you run this app, what happens is you get a window and a window proxy. You get a button and a button proxy because that's the two elements that are on the screen. You then click the button and it opens the next window. So you're getting two window proxies. Uh, you've now got two button proxies because there are there's still the other window underneath. When you close the window two, what should be happening is that there's a column called intermediate. Uh, an intermediate is where um, components go that will be removed by the garbage collection. So what should happen is you should see the number two next to the TIUE button. It should change to a one, and then one should move over into that intermediate column and eventually be cleaned up. And then you know, obviously the, the, the initial one will never be cleaned up because there's the default window on the screen. And what was happening with him is that you were opening window two, closing window two, opening window two, closing. And those numbers were going up and up and up. Nothing was going into intermediate. I think there was a couple of there was a, a couple of elements that were, but that was it. So what was happening was by the time you'd done it 10 times, you had 10 instances of the buttons, 10 instances of the windows, 10, and it was just going and going and going. Um, and with an app that size, it's not going to really cause any problems. Nothing's going to crash yet. But with a bigger app, a more complicated app with much more going on, I mean, imagine one of those screens as a gallery showing photo thumbnails. You're definitely going to see problems then. You're going to see problems then. And iOS, iOS is a fighter. You know, you can make some big mistakes with iOS and it will keep going as long as it can until it bombs out. But Android won't, won't even tolerate it. You know, I've seen apps that will launch in iOS and be fine, uh, but you launch them in Android and they immediately crash. And it's actually because there is a memory leak there. It's just not being picked up yet by iOS or iOS is trying to ignore it. But Android is just failing immediately. Especially if you're trying to write your own navigation system or to manage the windows yourself. Uh, yeah, you, you have to be careful. Um, you, have to, you have to know what to look for. And it's good that you're doing another blog post. I know we've, we've had a few, but it can't be emphasized too much. Just best practices for cleaning up stuff. Even with Alloy, um, just having best practices of knowing what to do. And I know you came up with the Alloy XL and we'll put a link to that as well, where kind of just best practices cleaning up stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Alloy, you know, you can still make mistakes in Alloy, but with classic titanium, it's really, really easy to make these mistakes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so in this example, uh, and I'll post it all up there, and in the you'll see the answer that's been accepted in Stack Overflow is the answer I gave, um, which basically just has these simple bullet points in there. But I also have got the code and I've given him the code and I'm not sure if I, I think I might have put the modified code up there, but I'll, I'll, I'll do that in the blog post anyway. Uh, but this is a really good one because you can actually download, you'll be able to download this code. I'll put it on GitHub. You'll be able to download the project. You'll be able to go to the branch, which is the, the broken branch and see it happening. You'll be able to flick to the new branch and see the solution. And what it turns out is that when you're doing stuff in titanium with these, uh, with, with classic titanium, titanium specifically is you've got to clean up afterwards. That includes things like event handlers. It includes all of the things you've created in that that view, plus any pointers that you might have created to them. And this is a real killer because you can do all the cleanup in the world, but then you could have a pointer 
that is uh, an array that contains a load of titanium objects and that immediately is going to cause you a problem because you've still got that pointer pointing to that those objects and even though you think you've killed those objects they're being kept alive um so so the actual solution if you look at when you see the code when i put it up is in his close event for his window two i basically reversed his creation process so i sort of went overboard um completely just to just to test everything so you know in window two he's creating a window he's creating a button he's adding an event listener to the button um, the the button handles the closing of the window. He's adding, um, I think he ha- he's adding a, a table view, a uh, table view. He's adding a section, he's adding a row and he's adding a label. That's, that's what he's doing on window two. So I reversed that whole process. You know, I uh, killed the label. I removed the label from the row and I killed the label. I nullified it. So set label to null um, or net label equals null. I removed the section. I removed the row and I nullified those. I removed the table. Uh, removed the section from the table and then I nullified the section. I removed the table from the view and then nullified the table. I nullified the array that was storing the list of sections. Um, I, you know, the button gets removed. The button gets nullified after it gets clicked. I removed the click handler for the button as soon as it was clicked. Um, and then I close the window and I nullify the window as well. And once I've done <laughs> all of that, which seems completely ludicrous, but once I've done all of that, especially the nullification, because I have forced the release of that proxy object. If you then rerun the code, what happens is you can click it eight times, 10 times. Now, sometimes the garbage collection is really weird with the way iOS works. So sometimes it will let you do three in a row. It will build up those three uh, active elements. And then as you click close and open the window for the fourth time, it will do a cleanup. And so suddenly you'll see the numbers change. And so what I saw was um, I sort of clicked open and close eight times, eight, 10 times, something like that. And the numbers were going up and they weren't going up to like eight, but they were sort of going up to sort of four, then down to three, then up to five, then down to two. And they were, but there was a lot of, there was a list there. You know, it was still listing all of the elements across the two windows, even though I was back to the window one. But there was a lot of stuff in the intermediate column. So there was a lot of stuff about to be cleaned up. And if you looked at the numbers and did some quick math, it was like that that's going to work out. They're all going to close. Um, I waited for about two minutes and it wasn't a clean up. Um, and then basically I forced it by just opening and closing again. So I opened a window again, the numbers went up. I closed it again, the numbers went down. And then about three seconds later, it bang, it all changed. And it went straight back to what it was originally, which was the window and window proxy and the button and pro- button proxy. So I was back at the very, very start with that default window. And that was the problem. Um, that was it. It was just the cleanup operation. Now, there's probably, and I I did this quickly last night, so I haven't had a time I haven't had time to play around with it. There could be, I've sort of done the belt and braces, you know, I've removed everything. It could be when I play around with the code that maybe just by clearing the section array, I've achieved the same thing as deleting all the sections and nullifying them. So there's probably some playing around I can do to it to see, you know, if I if I don't do this bit and I do this bit, does this affect everything, or do I have to do it all, or if I change the sequence round, you know? Um, so there's some things there that I want to play with, which is why I think it'll be interesting to do a blog post because, you know, this is the belt and braces approach of 20 lines of code to clean up, but actually you can achieve the same thing with five lines of code. That would be a good, you know, good way to look at it. But the key thing here is that by going down that approach of doing everything in classic, you have to accept a lot more responsibility for how you clean up and how you deal with this. Um, you know, in window one, for example, he was creating the, he was doing the require for window two and putting it in a variable. And that variable is then doing nothing except doing an open. So you've you've you're you're doing window two dot open and then window two variables doing nothing, which is keeping that pointer connected to it. So I just changed that to do you know require window two dot 
get window.open. So it's doing it in one line. There's no pointer. <coughs> and it's right. things it's it's tricks like that basically that you've got to do. And this is this is where my issue with avoiding and trying to avoid using alloy and going down this route is is because this process immediately leaves um your entire code base open to an easy mistake that can cause your app to crash. You know, if your policy is that whenever I open a window, whenever I require one of these windows in this app, I have to do this close um, routine of shutting down everything. And if I haven't put that in some sort of utility module or something, base controller or something as a cleanup operation, I have to do that manually each time. Then it is very easy for next week for me to add a new window with some new features in and forget one of those steps and forget one of those things that I have to clear. Or for another developer to come in and add a close option somewhere or a, another option that will close the window for some reason and not do the same cleanup. And that means your system is immediately broken. And what's nice about Alloy is Alloy will do a lot of this cleanup for you so you don't have to go through this ridiculousness of cleaning up all these different things um, yourself. But you can, yes. use tr- you can use tricks like I did with Alloy Excel where you can overwrite and override the Alloy um, create controller method and add in all your cleanup stuff yourself there. So you're doing it almost at the source. So it doesn't, as long as any developer coming in uses your alloy, uses the standard method of creating controllers, which is alloy.createController, there, whenever that window closes, that cleanup operation will kick in and it will do what it needs to do to make sure everything's cleaned up nicely. Um, so I and just I can like- emphasize the benefit of the consistency again. Like you said, it'll be done the same way in all your apps if you're using alloy. Yeah, exactly. And this is why. This is why one of the things I like doing is, um, what's the right word? Or augmenting or tweaking existing functionality so I'm not forcing the user to use a specific way of doing things. You know, like Alloy Excel is a good example. Okay, Resty's not, well, Resty's a sort of example, a good example, but it's not, I'm still telling you to, you know, do a config this way and don't use the normal Alloy way of doing configs. Um, but the end result when it comes to your code is pretty much the same in terms of the way it renders. But with Alloy Excel is a, is a good example of me not wanting to say, okay, I want you to require this, this sort of window management file and then everything you create has to go through that. And if one of you ends up doing an alloy.create controller and don't, you don't go through my module, then it's not going to work, basically. You're going to be off-piste and you're going to be broken and things are going to cause all kinds of problems. So it was that idea of saying, you know, you can drop... And I have done this recently with a particular project I've, I'm finishing off. Is I dropped the Alloy Excel um, files, you know, straight into the lib folder, required it in the Alloy fo- um, fo- uh, .js file, uh, and nothing, you know, nothing broken, nothing changed. But I was suddenly seeing all these log messages appearing as it was clearing up and, and cleaning up stuff, um, which Alloy Excel does just to let you know what it's doing. Uh, but you know, it's it's taking that thing and just tweaking something so that you're not going to break it easily or you're not going to be forced into using an interface or process that you're not comfortable with. Um, and that's, that's what I love about using Alloy because you can do stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can't emphasize. Yeah. It's, it's just great. Um, you get a lot of stuff it, and being in, it's all JavaScript. Like you said, with your Alloy Excel, it's extensible. So yeah, if you do want to wrap something, but being core that you wrapped like alloy create controller so you're already using alloy create controller to create your controllers everywhere in your app so you get the added benefit of that without having to rely on people using a a requiring a special utility or doing making sure a certain classes in 
each of your files. So take advantage of the, the common JS JavaScript framework and go with it. Use yeah, it. And, the, and the good example there is things like Google Analytics or any kind of analytics information that you're trying to get in there. Uh, you know, someone's added, a, someone's worked on a screen and then you've deployed the app and it's, you've realized that person didn't put the tracking code in there to track that that screen was being opened. Well, if you if you write your own version of Alloy.CreateController, you can do that tracking directly there. So you've immediately tracked the fact that, that screen's been opened. Uh, they don't need to worry about it. You've removed that need. You know, that all they have to do is have a button in the screen that says close. It closes. They don't have to clean up anything. That sort of stuff I like because it means you're writing less code. Um, that's why I like writing modules and I like writing these sort of components because I like the fact that you can bolt these, you can bolt an app together around them, and that app will will use these tested components that you know work, you know across platform if they're UE based, um, and you know you don't have to faff around with them. You can just get on with building your app and, and get something working, which is nice. Um, but but yeah, m- memory leaks. I mean, I I mean, I could probably load up. <laughs> I, I should probably load up a couple of the apps I'm working on in instruments just to see what they come up with, because they probably will have a few leaks in them. Even if they're done in Alloy, there's probably a few little you know tweaks that need doing. But it's one of those things that everyone should do. They should they should take their iOS app they're working on, whether it's been out there for a while or they're just working on it now. Just dump it into instruments. I'll I'll do this blog post so it'll be nice and clear how to do it. It'll be straightforward how to do it. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see what comes up because I think you'd be surprised. And it, and it's important because there's been situations in the past where I've dealt with apps. Uh, it was an Android app uh, when I was doing some work for Accelerator as a solutions architect. And I was helping a company who were deploying an app internally. And the application was crashing on, on Android. Um, so they were having an eventual crash on iOS, but this crash was happening much earlier on Android. And it was a contacts app. Um, and the idea was, if you have any of these contacts apps that you know list managers and uh, staff that work for that person, you can keep clicking forever. It's a bit like Twitter. You know, you go into the Twitter app, you can click a click a person's tweet, then click that person's profile, um, then click uh, someone who replied to them, then click their profile, and you're just going down and down this rabbit hole of screens, and it takes you sort of thirty minutes to back up again at the end of it. Um, and so this contacts app was like that. You could click a contact, you could click their manager, you could click their manager. And the test was to click all the way back to the CEO of this company and then and then go forward again, you know, click down his team and go all the way back essentially to the person you came from. Uh, and it was crashing, you know, pretty much every time as it got towards the CEO, it just couldn't take the nesting. Uh, and that turned out to be some view, that turned out to be a couple of things. One, there were some variab- uh, some uh, screens or variables that were, be- that were being defined without the VAR command. So they were effectively global. Um, that was really bad. So they were not being cleaned up properly. And the second thing was an event that was being created that wasn't being removed. And that re- event was associated with a view that was then not being destroyed. And so it was just eating up memory. Um, and by testing it on iOS, we actually solved the Android problem because Android's a bit more difficult to test. Um, some of the testing stuff on there is just, it's just not as nice and easy to use as instruments, I find. Um, so I, what I did is I debugged it on iOS and I, I solved the memory leak on iOS and made sure that worked. And once that was solved, we tested it on Android and it was absolutely fine. You could go up and down 50 times, you know, it didn't even matter. Um, so it's a really useful process to go through. And I, I think a lot of us, and definitely including me, have made mistakes in the past where we just assume stuff's working because iOS hasn't crashed. Uh, but it's just that we haven't got to that point yet. That's another advantage of a cross-platform native app is that you could do that. You could use iOS to solve an Android memory leak. 
Yeah, yeah, and they've um, and instruments works. It sort of works differently now, but I think there's a way around it, which I'll I'll test and, and if I can put it in the post, I will. So you used to be able to use instruments to attach to the process. So you could launch your app. So you could use Live View. You could launch your app. It's in the simulator, and you then attach to that process from instruments, um, and so it will just attaches to the running process. Um, now, when Live View, it's the reason I say avoid Live View in these situations when you're testing this is because sometimes Live View and TI Shadow and things like that, you know, this wrapper app they put around, uh, or the way that it works with Live View means that some elements might not get destroyed properly, and so it can be a bit of a um, a red herring in terms of oh, I've got stuff leaking, but actually you haven't. It's just the way that it's running within that wrapper, um, so it's always good to test it without just to be sure. Um, but yeah, the, the the new version of Instruments by default does it so that it sort of restarts the app, which is why it sort of fails. If you're using Live View, you've got the app running, then you say in Instruments, okay, start recording, and it immediately kills and relaunches the app, and then the Live View connection breaks. So that's the issue. Uh, with TI Shadow, it'll probably be fine, because TI Shadow runs as a server in the background and just kicks off again as soon as your app comes back. Um, but that's one thing to bear in mind. But I think there's a way around that. I think you can still do the attach. I just need to find that that routine, and then I'll stick that in the post. Uh, but it's just a really cool exercise because it's so easy to do. The TI UE thing filters all your TI uh, you know, component objects so you can immediately see what's going on. And all you're looking for is that proxy pairing. You're looking for those objects. You're looking for your JavaScript object on your side being destroyed, but you're also l- looking for its pair, um, its sort of twin being destroyed on the other side. Um, and if you can achieve that so that you know you minimize all those numbers and you get all your numbers into that intermediate column then you're in good shape and that was that and that's definitely going to help you with other platforms like android yeah and i again like we were talking about the collections and models uh i mean there are some developers out there that were like well i'm not not at that level i'm not a platform native developer i'm not comfortable around xcode and other things that's why i'm using titanium or accelerator and I would say, yeah, after you watch that video and look at some of these blog posts, just take an hour or two, go out there, create, uh, there's a sample app I know they have out there, but or, or just create one and go through the steps, attach it, go look at the instruments, try it out. It's not as scary as you might think. Um, and once you do it once or twice, then you'll be a lot more comfortable with it. And it's a valuable, very valuable skill to have as developers to be able to look at an app and be able to go and try and find those memory leaks. So don't let it overwhelm you. There's a lot of uh, step-by-step instructions out there on how to do it. But yeah, just go out there, do it, get comfortable with it because um, it's it's really necessary as a developer that you be able to do that. Yeah, and it also, it, it gets more important if you're using third-party modules and components as well, like native modules or whatever, because if you're if you're doing things like you know QR code scanning or anything that involves a native module that might be coming up with its own interface and doing things, um, cleaning up that stuff's really important as well because obviously they can take up resources. Um, but yeah, it's a good exercise to go through. It's definitely some. It's a bit of fun as well. It's a bit. You know, it's a bit sort of Sherlock Holmesy because um, you're sort of going through, going, I don't understand because this, this example is a really good one because it's only literally two windows. It's such a small, small amount of code, and you just think, how can this be going wrong like this? And it's actually quite fun going through and working out. And you start to realize how things are connected and the relationships between objects and what nullifying means and and how you know why you should do destroy when you're dealing with models to make sure they're being destroyed and and memory cleaned up and it's a, it's a really good eye opener. It'll change how you what you're thinking the next time you go to create a new app as well or go to modify an existing app. You'll remember some of that and you're like, oh yeah, make sure I do this. 
Yeah, and I, I'm really interested in if there are people listening at all. I'm interested, <laughs> um, but if there are people listening who have done, you know, memory management stuff, who've come across issues, who've come across challenges, who've come across solutions, then please let us know so that we can talk about that in the next episode and follow up. Um, if there's anyone out there that that can defend classic um, JavaScript and classic Titanium and and why we shouldn't be using Alloy and why not, what, you know, why using classic is better. I want to hear that as well. You know, I'm, I'm open to discussion on it because I, I'm interested to understand how people are doing stuff. Um, for me, Alloy works um, and I love the way it works, but obviously there's other people out there that might feel differently. So it'd be interesting to know, well, specifically why you think classic Titanium might be better to use either in part or fully or maybe you use certain features of Alloy, but you do most of it with Classic and you do use your own rendering system. Or maybe there's really good reasons why, you know, you don't use Alloy. Um, and we can address those and talk about those as well. That'd be really cool. That'd be great. Anything else you want to cover? Wow, I think we've covered a lot today. Yeah, Again, I so. <laughs> but I think that's all I have. Cool. Okay, well, we'll get the release notes. We'll get uh, the show notes. Um, we'll... Put all the links in the show notes, uh, put all the references in there as well. Definitely go and see that video. Um, watch that several times. Take in what it's being said. Um, I'll put some links into the Stack Overflow comments, especially the the code, the questions and the code to do with um, this particular memory leak one. And hopefully in a couple of weeks, by the time we do another release, another episode, um, I'll get this blog post out on how to use instruments and we can follow up with any feedback from that, which will be great. Sounds good. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you in a couple of weeks, or you'll hear us in a couple of weeks. Um, happy coding, code strong, and thanks, Brenton. See you next time. <laughs>